0: Well, I will add my Happy Father's Day greeting to the ones that have already gone before. The last time I, uh, I did a special, special <laughs> uh, message for Father's Day was actually June 2014. So it is not my practice to always do a special message on Mother's Day or Father's Day. My general practice is just to continue... Uh, wherever we are in the book that we are in, in the Bible, and just continue explaining and, and expounding upon uh, those truths that we find there. And so, you know, as you know, we, or maybe you don't know, we are in 1 Peter. So we'll come back to 1 Peter. We're almost actually done with that letter, um, thinking about going to 1 Thessalonians, but have not made a final decision about that yet. But uh, this morning I thought I would, I would uh, tackle another Father's Day message since it's been three years, and I did a Mother's Day message, so I thought it was only fair. (laughs) Uh, If you weren't here in June 2014, I would encourage you, uh, and you didn't hear that message, I would encourage you, it's available in our archive, our our online archive, to go back and listen to that. I think it was good. (laughs) I always try to (laughs) give you something that's good. Um, I titled it The Perfect Father. The perfect Father. So again, there was an emphasis, as you might think, on, on the Heavenly Father, on God the Father. I, I stated in that message that I had, I had just two goals. The first was to have a more, for all of us to have a more accurate or biblical view uh, of the Heavenly Father, because that view may not always be Biblical. And the second was to encourage fathers to view the heavenly father as the model father and make it their ambition to pattern their fatherhood after him. A lot of fathers in that sentence. As one pastor has put it, and I agree, the overarching guide for every father should be to live in such a way that his children can see what God the Father is like. Wow. Wow. That's a huge calling, huge task, and certainly not possible without the grace of God and the Spirit of God. But in that message, I went on to consider four characteristics of our Heavenly Father that we as human fathers should seek to imitate by God's grace and, of course, the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And those characteristics were the Heavenly Father's patience, his discipline, his reliability, and his mercy. Again, all great characteristics that we as fathers can certainly imitate and look to um, and consider in our approach with our children and those we're raising. And when I considered preparing another Father's Day message, I first thought to simply cover some additional characteristics. I was uh, thinking of calling it the perfect father part two. Yeah? However, uh, in light of a a fantastic book, a, a fantastic book that I have recently read. I decided to go a somewhat different direction with you this morning and speak briefly. And by the way, this is, will not be like what you're used to, where we're moving through a text and we're examining everything in the text. This will be more of a devotional flavor this morning. But uh, speak briefly on the rather significant fact that the one true God that we worship is a father and has always been one. He is a father and he has always been one. Even before the creation came into existence, even before we were here, even before time began, God was a father. He's an eternal father. And so that is why uh, the title is what it is, because that's going to be my focus this morning. So you might say, so what? So what? Well, uh, as we consider the, that fact, uh, we, will, we will explore just uh, a little of what it, that means, just a little bit, and why that matters, okay, with the goal that you might walk away understanding God better and loving him even more, okay? That's really the basic idea, that you'll, you'll walk away understanding God a little bit better and loving him even more. And, then, and the reality is, It's that love that stimulates our obedience to him, true obedience, God-honoring obedience. It is obedience born out of love, love for God. So this connects us right back. In our sanctification, how are we sanctified? Honestly, it is by knowing God better and knowing him better, loving him more. In fact, one person said, and I agree, loving God begins with knowing God. And so this fits in too with uh, our study that we've been doing, our, our monthly study, of Behold Your God, Rethinking God Biblically. We must know our God and we must know him accurately. And, that, and from knowing him, love flows. And from that love, obedience flows. So the book I mentioned is called uh, Delighting in the Trinity. Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves, a. a picture of that book. It's right here as well, but I wanted you to see it. I think it's been out for a couple of years, but um, I just finally read it. Some folks had read it, and had recommended it to me. Thomas read it, got all excited. I finally said, okay, I'll read it. So I read it, and I highly, 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 highly uh, recommend this book to you and would encourage you. It's not, it's not thick, and it's, a, it's just a very wonderful and easy read. And uh, you can find it on Amazon or, or other places, I'm sure. But I would encourage you, make it your summer reading. And, and let me just say this also, beloved. I, I know that um, not everyone loves to read. I, I know that because I've been told that. I happen to love to read, but not everyone does. But let me encourage you, as a Christian, do it anyway. Uh, do it anyway, and then maybe pray that God would give you a love to read. But either way, do it because that, honestly, my growth has come from not just reading the Word of God. Of course, that's reading as well, reading the Word of God. But then God gives people to the body, to the church, to to, to, uh, to us, to, to write and to help us understand the glories of the Word of God, and to bring those truths to bear into our lives, to help us get at it a little bit differently and And so you're just, you're missing out on that. My growth has come, I think, primarily from just all the good Christian books that I have read uh, alongside having that Bible open right there so that you're always referencing back and forth. So as a a shepherd in this body and trying to shepherd you and help you to grow, uh, I'll say it and I'll say it again, of course, as long as I live, read, read good books. And certainly don't just read anything because there's a lot of bad stuff out there, but you can read this one. This is a trustworthy book. So there's my, um, my attempt to get you to buy it and read it. And, and I don't own stock in the company or anything like this. I, just, I, love your, I love you and I care for your souls. And I just can't tell you uh, what a wonderful impact it's had on me. Make it your summer read, all right? I've never had a summer read. Make it your first time summer read. Anyway, a trinity, Delighting in the Trinity is the name of the book. Trinity, uh, that is the doctrine, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thomas mentioned it, we sang a Trinitarian song, it was reflecting on all those persons of the Godhead, it's three co-equal, co-eternal persons, not personalities, not personalities, um, let me just say real quickly, I feel, even this morning, I feel like I'm I'm going to try to do my best, but there's so much in the book and I couldn't, and nor would it be appropriate to bring it all to you. Uh, I'm just really trying to bring you a little and and hopefully entice you to, to get it. But I was thinking, I've I've spoken to some folks, even within this body and others, who there's a teaching out there called modalism. It's not the right teaching concerning our God. It's the teaching that uh, God, in a sense, has different personalities or wears different hats, and so in one moment he'll be the Father, on uh, the next moment he'll be the Son, and the next moment he'll be the Spirit. It does not recognize the biblical doctrine, which is the triune God, three persons but only one God. And they address that multiple times in the book, and one of the reasons, and this is not in my sermon, I'm just speaking to you because uh, I came to my mind right now, we talk about God being love, right? We we, we relish that. We love that. God is love. But how could God be love if he didn't have someone to love? How could he be love? Love extends its affection to another. Okay? But God is love because from all eternity, God has had other persons, and specifically his son, spirit, to love. To love. So it's something as simple as that, getting that understanding that doctrines matter. Uh, teaching of the scriptures matter. They matter significantly. It's not that it doesn't matter, okay, well, whatever you want to believe about God. No, it matters what you believe about God because it will impact other things that you might, may or may not believe. So such as that, as God is love, we can say that and we can believe that because God has been loving from all eternity it is who he is he's a god of relationship he has been in relationship not with himself but the father with the son and the son with the father and the spirit just a beautiful beautiful thing Um, so anyway now the word delighting though so that's the trinity but delighting delighting in the trinity so when i think about delighting i might think hey In God's grace, I delight. Yes, right? Uh, In heaven, yes, I delight. Uh, In salvation, oh my, yes, I delight in those things. But in the Trinity? In the Trinity? That whole thing, I kind of having a hard time to understand anyway. Uh, But yes, yes, and yes. One yes for every person of the Trinity. Yes, delighting in the Trinity. And I am, and I am. And more so, and continue to hope to be delighting in this and glorying in the, in the God that saved me. So I highly recommend it to you. Wonderful content. I'm only going to scratch the surface of it this morning. Barely. To say it another way, we're going to just kind of just dip our, our toes. Dip our toes, so you can see over there. We're going to dip our toes uh, into the large, refreshing pool of water that this book is. So much more for us to consider and delight in when thinking about the Trinity than we will uh, be able to cover this morning. So please, get the book. Uh, Get it for a friend um, and read it, and read it. I promise you'll be blessed, I promise. On the back of the book, one person is quoted as saying, Michael Reeves presents the triune God as the best thing about the Christian life. He reminds us that the God of the gospel is good news in three persons. Good news in three persons. Best thing, best thing about the Christian life? You may not have thought about it that way, but I think you will. I think you'll agree after reading the book. Okay? So this morning, I hope to give you really just a little something to begin today to meditate on and truly rejoice in, and hopefully we'll stir you on to dive deeper into this subject of the Trinity, and this would be a great place to start right here, okay? All right, chapter 1. Uh, of the book is titled, What Was God Doing Before the Creation? What was God doing before the creation? Now, before answering that question, and, you know, you may never even have asked that question, because it's kind of outside of our reality, you know, before the creation. You mean in, in eternity past, before time began, before matter came into existence? I don't know. Well, we do know. We do know something about that, so we'll get to that in a moment. But what was he doing? But anyway, before answering that, let's start with this. The opening verse of the Bible, right? You open that that book up, and the first thing you read is this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this opening verse of the Bible reveals something very important to us about our God. In fact, something that many in the world reject. Okay, They reject this. But as you continue to read on in Genesis, you discover, as many of you already know, that God is the one, God is the one who is entirely responsible for all the life that is on earth. He created the plant life, the insect life. I know, I know, but he did. He has his reasons and his purposes, the animal life, and most importantly, the apex of this life, the human life. Human life, specifically a man and a woman, specifically Adam and Eve. Two, created them to live on his earth, subdue it, have dominion over it basically be his representatives on his creation and populate it or fill it with more people okay so god is the creator of everything of our world and all that is on it and all that is around it so that includes all the, the galaxies the universes the whole shebang god creator. And so as the sole creator then, the creator, he certainly has the right to do what he wants with his creation and establish or make the rules for it, right? So being creatures as we are, we are not autonomous, independent beings, though people wrongly think that they are but we are not. Rather, we come into this world, we have come into this world and continue to come into this world as, the, as human beings continue to, to populate the world. We come into this world as subjects of the Creator. As subjects of the Creator. It is His world. And by subjects, I mean that is we are under the Creator's control and jurisdiction subject to his sovereign rule and reign. Yeah? Yes, yes. Uh, We don't maybe use the terminology subjects because we are not under a king in our country, but that would have been understood in another time. To be a king's subject, one simply had to be born in any territory under the sovereignty of the crown of the king. Another way to define subjects is they are the people subject to the laws and precepts made by the king. He rules, he reigns, they're under they, they're in his domain, they're under his authority, he makes the rules and they're under that rule. They are subjects of the king. And so God, as creator of it all, all are subject to him and come under his jurisdiction and his rules, his reign. Are you with me? Okay, and I've even In explaining the gospel or God to people, I've had that discussion with them to help them see that because I think they're just autonomous little machines that they can do whatever they want. They answer to no one. No, no. No, you answer to someone. We all do because he's the creator. You with me? But the book I'm recommending to you asks this question in the first chapter. Is God essentially, fundamentally, the creator, the one in charge? Is God essentially, fundamentally, the creator, the one in charge? Is that essentially who he is? He is creator, but is that essentially who he is? The book goes on to say this, if We start there, that God is creator. With that as our basic view of God, then we will find every inch of our Christianity covered and wasted by the nastiest, toxic fallout. Hmm. Are you intrigued? Are you tired? Intrigued? All right, good, all right. I got a couple of yes on the tired and a yes on the intrigue, so I'll take whatever I can get. So, that sounds like a very bold statement. But why, and I'm going to tell you, this is an orthodox book. I stand absolutely behind it. But why does he say that? This is so, this is. For starters, for starters, why would he say such a thing? If we start with God, is that, that's our view. When we just think of God, fundamentally, what it, he's creator. If we start with that, then listen. If God's very identity is to be the creator, the ruler, then he needs a creation to rule in order to be who he is. For all his cosmic power, then, this God turns out to be pitifully weak. He needs us. He needs us. Beloved, does God need us? That's important because some people think he does. Like this whole, this whole thing is because he is needy or he's lacking or even in order to define who he is, he needs his creation. Is God dependent on anything or anyone outside of himself? If he is, then he is not God. That is no God at all. You and I are dependent. He is not on anything outside of himself. So that's just one simple consideration. But the other is more interesting. In addition to that, The author, Michael Reeves, says this. If God's very identity is to be the ruler, the ruler, creator and therefore ruler, as the sovereign maker of all things, what kind of salvation can he offer me? If God is the ruler and the problem is that I have broken the rules, the only salvation he can offer is to forgive me and treat me as if I had kept the rules. But if that is how God is, my relationship with him can be a little better than my relationship with any traffic cop. And he writes, no offense to cops. What is, he, what is he saying? The point he goes on to make is a loving relationship would not be part of that scenario. God, just as creator, ruler. There's no loving relationship. At best, the only thing we could compare it to is a a relationship we might have with a police officer. So think about it. If a cop caught you breaking the law, you might be punished. That's one result, right? He's the law keeper. Or if you're breaking the law, but... You don't get spotted or you, you manage to not get caught. You might be relieved, but either way, you wouldn't love the police or the police officers or the law keepers. You wouldn't love them. On one sense, you're getting punished. in the other sense, you're, you didn't get punished this time because, you know, whatever. Maybe you, you got away or they didn't see you, but there's relief, but there's not love. Not in that relationship. And if a police officer caught you breaking the law, and this maybe gets a little bit closer to what God has actually done, if he caught you to breaking the law but but chose to let you off the hook and then treat you like a law-abiding citizen, you still wouldn't love him. You still wouldn't love that police officer. That's not the relationship. He goes on to say, I might feel grateful in that scenario, cop catches you, decides to let you off and treat you not as you are, a lawbreaker, but to treat you as a law-abiding citizen, you might feel grateful, and that gratitude might be deep, right? Especially if it's a red light. That's like 350 bucks. There's some deep gratitude there. But that is not the same thing as love. And so it is with the divine policeman if that is, if that is fundamentally what God is if salvation simply means him letting me off and counting me as a law-abiding citizen, then gratitude, not love, is all I have. In other words, I can never really love the God who is essentially, fundamentally, basically, just the ruler. And that, ironically, means I can never keep the greatest command to love the Lord my God. So it matters. It matters how we see God, how we understand who He is. And the, and, the, and the book is going on to say there's something wonderful and beautiful about this triune God. And so now, back to the question, and it impacts everything. It impacts the salvation that He offers. It impacts His creation. It impacts everything. His providence, it impacts everything as we understand who this God fundamentally is. So back to the question. What was God doing before creation? What was he doing? Creation is not eternal. It has not always been here, in case you did not know. It has not always been here. The universe has not always existed. Okay? It came into being. It came into existence through the sovereign creating act of God. So, God is eternal. Yes? He has always existed. You and I can't really get our minds around that because we came into existence, but he has always existed. So, in eternity past, what was God doing? Playing golf? Well, Jesus who the scriptures, the Bible revealed to us is the divine son of God. Divine son of God. Second person of the triune God. Jesus, in one of his recorded prayers in John 17, 24, and I'm just going to show you the beginning and the ending of the verse, just so you can see who he's addressing and what he says. He says this, Father, you love me before the foundation of the world. What do we learn? Listen, write this, mark it, highlight it, get the book. What do we learn about God from this revelation of the Son of God? What do we learn? And the writer goes on to say, before God ever created... Before he ever ruled the world, before anything else, this God was a father loving his son. That's huge. Huge. Not fundamentally creator. Is he creator? Yes! He created. But is that, is that fundamentally who he is? No, before anything came into existence, before he exercised his creative power, he was a father loving his son for all eternity. Now, trying to build suspense, but I don't know. I'm trying to help. Come on, guys. Are you with me? Are you with me so far? All right. Now, a quick word about what we think when we hear the word father. <laughs> okay, so he's an eternal father. Okay. The author of the book addresses this as well, saying that not everyone instinctively warms to the idea that God is Father, and I certainly agree with that. As I've said before in a previous message on Father's Day, even those who have been good fathers are at best an imperfect reflection of the Heavenly Father, and in the case of bad fathers, they would not just be an imperfect reflection, but rather a greatly distorted reflection bearing little or no resemblance at all to the Heavenly Father. And beloved, hey, sadly, as you know, our messed up world has its share of what we would refer to as bad fathers, Uh, like fathers who selfishly abandon their children, or fathers that remain with their kids but then grossly neglect them and or painfully abuse them. Or fathers that may not be abusive to their kids and may provide for them materially, but that is the utter extent of their relationship with their kids. So the father takes no personal interest in the lives of his children. As someone has said, it is easier for a father to have children than for children to have a real father. Or a good one, a godly one, one who reflects the ultimate father, the perfect father. And the book adds this, and I think it's good to think through these things. God the Father is not called Father because he copies earthly fathers. He's not some pumped up version of your dad. To transfer the failings of earthly fathers to him is quite simply a misstep. Instead, things are the other way around. It is that all human fathers are supposed to reflect him. Only, where some do that well, others do a better job of reflecting the devil. And that is the truth. That's the reality that we live in in a broken world. So when we think of that word father, we need to not pour into that word maybe the bad experiences we've had or know of with imperfect fathers, sinful fathers, okay? And understand the word is wonderful when we consider it being applied to the heavenly father. God, he is the perfect father. So back to the idea that before anything came into existence in eternity past, what was God doing? Well, (laughs) we know at least this, and it's so big. He was a father loving his son, so what, you say? Okay, which is fair. Now, I have to add that there's a trinity discussed in this book, so it's Father, Son, and Spirit, and I won't even touch the matter of the person of the Spirit and his involvement and how, he, how this all plays in together. It's glorious. It's glorious. This morning, I'm just focusing on the Father, Son. So just as a disclaimer, I'll say that. But The writer goes on to say, since God is before all things a father and not primarily creator or ruler, then, this is the so what, all his ways are beautifully fatherly. It is not that this God does being father as a day job, only to kick back in the evenings as plain old God. It is not that he has a nice blob of fatherly icing on top. He is father all the way down. Thus, all that he does, he does as father. That is who he is. He creates as a father, and he rules as a father. And that means the way he rules over creation is most unlike the way any other god, imaginary god, would rule over creation. Beloved, this is so wonderful in so many ways that we cannot discuss all of them this morning, but he goes on to talk about the gods, the pagan gods, and the other gods that people have created in their minds, how different they are from this triune god who is a loving father of his son for all eternity. How very different. You might have a pagan God that creates subjects to rule over them and control them. And if they don't submit to them, him, then he crushes them to show how powerful he is. That is not our God. Not our God. He created them as a father. He rules over them as a father, a father who loves his son. Okay, so how does God rule over his creation, right? Is he a divine policeman? Is he hiding behind Taco Bell, just waiting for you to run that light? There's one on Mountain, by the way. They do it uh, every morning. <laughs> just looking for you to mess up. <laughs> got to, you know, add to the city coffer, so he's got to, you know, write so many tickets that day. I don't, you know, is he that? Looking to bust you, looking to, you know, demonstrate his authority, Or does he rule his creation as a kind, good, and loving father? Yes, it's that. It's that. Before he was ever creator or ruler, he was a loving father. And everything, everything flows out of that. So then knowing that, we can delight in the way in which he cares for and directs all things in his universe. Or we might call that providence. We can delight in it. We can delight in his law. He's not just throwing out laws to see if you can you know, keep them and look to bust you. If you don't, he gives his law, he gives his commands as a loving father who cares deeply about his creation. You know, It's a totally, now you start to see as you read the scriptures, and people are delighting. The psalmist are delighting in his law, delighting in his commands. Oh, how I love the law. May it be my meditation day and night. Why? Where did it come from? A loving father, a wise father, a good father, a compassionate father. And just like any good father would give his son or daughter instructions for their good, for their good, so has our Father. You know, that's really the issue with sin, right? Sin keeps telling us, oh no, what he says is not good. Don't listen to it. But if you see him only as divine ruler, then maybe that might be a thought that you would certainly entertain. He just throws this stuff out. No, it's the heavenly father that gave you his word and his commands and his moral law. But beyond that, let's stop and consider the creation itself. Not just how does it impact the fact that he's a ruler, he rules as a father, but he creates as this father. And specifically, primarily, a father loving his son. A father loving his son. So the writer points out, here is a God who is not essentially lonely. Okay? So that's not the issue. God is not... uh, Looking for love, like he's in need of it because he has it, he always has had it. He is a father who has been loving his son, so he's not looking to take when he creates, rather, in his love, he is looking to give and to share in that love. It's beautiful. He's been loving for all eternity as the Father has loved the son. And by the way, loving others is not a stranger, novel thing for this God, not at all, the writer says. It is at the root of who he is. Right? Because that's who he has always been, loving another. This is why this is so this is why one understands these things and thinks through them, they will delight, their heart will leap in the truthe of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, eternally. And this is so wonderful, he goes on to say, since God the Father, listen, has eternally loved his Son, then it is entirely characteristic of him to turn and create others that he might also rule over them, love them. Love them. The Father has always enjoyed loving another, and so the act of creation by which he creates others to love seems utterly appropriate for him. Thus, Jesus Christ, God the Son, is the logic, the blueprint, if you will, for creation. He is the one eternally loved by the Father. Creation, then is about the extension of that love, the love of the father and the son, outward so that it might be enjoyed by others. Whoa. The father so delighted in his son that his love for him overflowed so that the son might be the firstborn among the preeminent one, among many sons. This is glorious, beloved, as you, if you're saved, <laughs> and as you consider these things, it is glorious. And if you're not saved, it should draw you in, if you really understand this, to this Father and to His Son, the Savior. The writer goes on to quote Romans eight 29. We've covered the passage, but consider, for those whom He, He being God the Father, foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, this one he loves. Why? In order that he might be the firstborn, the preeminent one, among many brothers, brothers, bring more in to share in this love. God has predetermined it. Jesus Christ, as we know, becomes the head of a new race of humanity, purified from sin and prepared, as one writer says, to live eternally with the Father in his love. Ephesians 1, 3 through 3-5, consider these words in light of, as you begin to think about this eternal Father in his, his love relationship with His Son and His reasons for creating. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through his beloved son, his eternal son, Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. The writer commenting says, this God does not begrudge having someone else beside him. He enjoys it. He has always enjoyed showering his love on his son and in creating he rejoices to shower it on children he loves through the sun it's glorious it's glorious now this is where you just begin to really delight Back to the verse from John that I quoted earlier, the prayer of the Son of God that reveals the fact that what he was happening before creation even began was the Father was loving the Son. Back to that passage, Jesus, the full section now, it says, Father, I desire that they, his disciples, his followers, also whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. We've always been in this relationship and this relationship is driving everything else. Oh righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known watch, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So again, quoting from the book, the the writer says, the Father loved him before the creation of the world, and the reason the Father sends him is so that the Father's love for him might be in others also. That is why the Son goes out from the Father in both creation and salvation, that the love of the Father for the Son might be shared. You know, uh, we talk about, you know, the glories of heaven and the delight, all of the things, all the things we look forward to. No more sin, no more struggle, no more struggle with sin, no no more fallen world, no more fallen people, all glorified, all perfected. No disease, no death, no more sorrow, right? And those are things to glory in, for sure. But the real prize of heaven, the real prize is to be with God the Father and his Son and to be washed, drowning, if you will, in that great love forever. To know what the Son has known and that the Father has given eternally to him that is the great prize. That is the great delight. That is what should draw people from this world to him. It's not just a matter of uh, uh, fleeing hell. That is certainly part of it. But even those warnings are warnings given in love. It's not just like, I just got to get out of, it's not about just not going to hell or paying the wrath for your sin. It is about coming to the one who created you to be in a loving relationship with him. It is being drawn to him. That is the gospel. So the son, the son of his love, goes out willingly, Willingly. It's not the father going, you're going to go. The son willingly goes out. This love is overflowing. The son knows what he has. And in his love, he wants that love to be shared. He wants others to know it and to fellowship in it. Wow. So chapter three, the son shares what is his But how can he do that? How how is that going to be achieved? How will he share it? Because humanity has fallen. Humanity is messed up. Humanity has sinned and created a barrier between God and man because God is a father, but he is a holy father. Love has been twisted, as the writer goes on to point out. Instead of love for God in the garden It turned to self, love of self, loving self more than loving God. That's why people disobey. They love self more than they love God. They sin because they love someone else more than Him. So the price for our sin must be paid and our hearts by the new creation turned back to the Father. The writer says, the father sent him that we who have rejected him might be brought back. But listen, this is so glorious. Not merely as creatures, you know, not merely as creatures. All right, come back. I created you little jerks. I got to, you know, I'll bring you back in. Not like that. I guess I'll put up with you. But as children, as children, he sends the son that we might be brought back, not merely as creatures of the creator, but as children to enjoy the abounding love the son has always known. And when you begin to consider those things, then you understand when we talk about adoption that this is what This is about being adopted back into that family, being brought back, that you might be a child of the Father, because that was the intention. Then you read 1 John 3, 1, and you understand as he exclaims it, you read it rightly, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are beloved that is amazing remember i told you it our obedience god honoring obedience is obedience driven by love when you begin to uh, meditate on these things and consider these things what does it stir up in your heart father whatever you ask that shall i do you have loved me with such a great love and you have poured out your love into my heart. And I love you because of this great work you have done. What would you have me to do? I delight in you, and I delight in your delight. See, that's that's how you get at obedience and sanctification and growth in the Christian life. And of course, we know that we become his children. John 1 12 says we're not, we become John 1.12 says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, that is Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. We are adopted into this family. Sin has separated us from God, has placed us as enemies of God, living in rebellion against God, but through the Son, through his loving work on that cross, we are made new and we can be brought into the family of God and made his children. And you think about that, we don't, I won't go through it all, but you think about we then become brothers of Christ. We uh, become co heirs with the Son. What do you think that's all about? That's the sharing of the Father. That's the sharing of the Son. That's love. He invites us in that He might share, not because they need us. They have relationship, they have love because they want to give. They just want to give. That's love. It gives with no thought of itself. It gives for the good of another. That's love. That's our God. A father loving his son and wanting to share that relationship with his creation. One writer, says, G.I. Packard says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Beloved, Christianity is the greatest love story of all time. If you don't know the Father because you've never come to the Son in repentance, in faith, I invite you, I I urge, I exhort you, I welcome you, I plead, come. Sin has separated you from the Father. But Christ, the Son, the Beloved, has come willingly that you might have life and be brought back into a relationship with the Father, that you might know that love, not just now, but in perfection for all eternity. I invite you to come. Come in your heart and in your mind to God, even now, even now. (gasps) Confessing that you are a sinner, that you are guilty before this holy God, But you come to Him through the saving work of the Son, and you ask that He save you. Plead for His mercy. He will give it. He will give it. You will find it. And you will be saved and adopted into this family. And to you who know God is Father, because you have come to him, the only way that one can come to him, through his beloved son. Rejoice. Rejoice in this triune God that we worship and praise. And get the book. Get the book. Life is difficult, beloved. So when something like this comes along, I'm so grateful to God for it. Because that's what I need. I need the gospel. I need to fill my heart with gospel truths. Times three. The gospel in three persons. See the glories of all that. The glories of my God. Father in heaven, we thank you Thank you for your, your word. We thank you for the gifted people that you have given to the church throughout time. So many that help us understand you better, more accurately, and in knowing you. Worship and love and adoration, all flowing out of that. Father, I do pray that you would work in people's hearts and minds. They're so. I covered so little, so little. There's so much. You are so awesome. So worthy of our praise. So worthy of our praise. So Father, we, we, never, we never come to you and get to know you better and go, ooh. No, every time we get to know you better, our hearts leap. Our pride is destroyed. Our lips bring forth praise, for you are indeed awesome. Thank you. In Christ's name.